Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Um, I've had a bit of an existential crisis this week, asking the question, why does God hate soccer so much? (laughs) Now, truthfully, many of us on staff have actually recorded the game and have no idea what happened, so if you're here and you do know what happened, please do not say anything to any of us for the entire morning. You would make my day, and I would love you a lot more than I already do, and I'm not even kidding a little bit. Some of you are like, I love that our pastor got up and the first thing he's talking about is soccer, the game that God created and loves. Some of you are like, why is this guy talking about soccer? Because everyone who actually cares more about that isn't here. Either way, please don't say anything. We would deeply appreciate it. Anyway, with that said, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, this is our fourth Sunday of Advent. And we've been looking at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 at the five dreams that Matthew talks about in his gospel surrounding the birth narrative of Jesus. And this morning, I want to go all the way back to the very beginning of Matthew to give us some context as to how he frames this entire gospel from the very beginning. Now, there's one word I'm going to ask you to remember this morning, and it's the only word that is the correct answer to any question I will ask you, and it is the word kings. Say kings. Kings, Kings, yes. Now, as we're talking about kings, I want you to think about what comes to mind when you have the image of king. It's a bit of an archetypal image. It's something that gives us something in our mind to think about. But this is the word, this is the image that I want us to focus on together this morning. So with that said, Matthew 1, verse 1, he begins by saying this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, a son of Abraham. Now, if you're reading this in the first century context and you are a Jewish recipient of this gospel, which are the people that Matthew wrote to, you realize Matthew from the start is making an incredibly bold claim. He's not being subtle at all. He's not even being a little subversive. He's making a bold claim right from the outset that Jesus is king. He says this by first saying this is about Jesus the Messiah. And the Messiah is an English word that we take from the Greek, that they take from the Hebrew, that simply means anointed. And in the ancient context, if you were someone who was anointed, 
What that meant is that you were king, not just king, but that you were chosen by God to lead. And for the Jewish people in Matthew's time, they were longing for and waiting for and crying out for the Messiah, and they were doing so because the Messiah was the one who was prophesied and predicted who would come to the people of Israel and overthrow their oppressor, which in this context is the people of Rome or the Roman Empire, and that the Messiah would liberate them and free them and allow them to live as free people in their land. And many scholars say that actually in Jesus' day, this longing for Messiah was at fever pitch. That historically, this was the time that people anticipated the Messiah more than any other time. That's not the only claim, though, that Matthew makes about being a king. He also says, son of David. Now, if you know about King David, King David was written about in 1 and 2 Samuel, and he was considered the greatest king of all time in the history of the Israelite people. He was a king who was a warrior. He was a king who expanded their territory. He was the one who went up and captured the city that was renamed Jerusalem. He was the one who built a palace. He wanted to build a, a temple for God, but his son Solomon uh, did after that. But, but this idea of son of David is important because after Israel fell to the hands of the Babylonians and the Persians, what we learn is that uh, the the people began waiting for another son of David to rise up and be king. Why were they waiting for this? Well, because God spoke to David through the prophet Samuel and said these words, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You see, what they believed is that there would one day come a son of David, this anointed one, this Messiah, this king, who would come and as a descendant of David, would not only liberate the people, but his throne would be established forever. That never again would the people of Israel fall under oppression. So Matthew, right from the beginning, is making a claim about Jesus that he is king. What is Matthew 1 about? Kings. You guys... I said it's the only, some of you are like preconditioned. You're like, no, the answer is always Jesus. Well, it kind of is. It's just that Jesus is king. What is Matthew 1 about? Kings, yes. Now, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We looked at this a few weeks ago. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now all of a sudden it's getting a little bit juicier. Because Herod, as we talked about a few weeks ago, really kind of bought the title king of the Jews through a lot of political maneuvering with uh, Caesar Augustus and with the Senate and with Mark Antony. Now you have people in a massive entourage coming from the east showing up and saying, where is the king of the Jews? the one who's been born that, the Messiah, the son of David, the one who will liberate his people. You see, what Matthew's doing in a very not-so-subtle way is he's framing Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, and the entire birth narrative of Jesus and even the rest of his gospel around what it means to be king. So when I ask you, what is Matthew 1 and 2 about, you would say? Yes, what is the gospel of Matthew about? You would say? Kings, exactly. Exactly. 
So with this in mind, let's jump to the fourth and fifth dream. We'll read verses 19 through 23 in Matthew chapter 2. Today is part one. Christmas Eve is part two. That's just a little like preview for inviting you to join us on Christmas Eve. It says this, after King Herod died, after King Herod, the one to whom the Magi came, after he died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And it said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph receives the dream and he hears Herod's dead. Great news. King Herod, as we talked about, was a madman. He was unstable. He was paranoid. He's dead. Go back to Israel. But here's the line that caught my attention. It says he goes back, and then he hears that Archelaus is reigning, and he's afraid. Archelaus being the new king. Archelaus being the son of Herod. And I began to wonder, why was Joseph scared? And so I began digging into the history of what was happening between the time of Herod's death to the time that Joseph and Mary and Jesus would have returned to Israel, and I was absolutely blown away. There is so much here. And so I got to thinking, well, how can we even like, tap into this and without skipping a stone across the surface this morning? And I thought, well, let's have a Christmas pageant. How many of you have ever been to a Christmas pageant? How many of you have ever been in a Christmas pageant? Many of you. The more I got thinking about it, I was like, this is actually, it's going to be very different than any Christmas pageant you've ever been to. Let me just say that. It's actually not really even a Christmas pageant. I promise, and I'm sorry. But what I do need is I need a bunch of volunteers who are okay being up here on the platform with me. So if that's you, what I need you to do is just raise your hand, and we're going to give you some parts and some props, and we're going to make this whole thing happen this morning. Hey, podcast listeners, uh, so this next bit maybe doesn't translate great on a podcast. Uh, we do have it here for you, so uh, listen at your own risk. Uh, if it's frustrating and just not making any sense and sounding bad, uh, just skip ahead. You can skip ahead to the remainder of the teaching at about 22 and a half minutes. Okay, okay. perfect, perfect, perfect. Anthrogies, Augustus. Augustus, you're over here in Rome. All right, now, here's what else we need, is we are going to need a narrator. Uh, oh. Okay, I guess that means that we don't I need... I am the narrator. Okay, um, I suppose that we don't need anybody to volunteer. I am the narrator. All right, I think we understand that now. I am... Okay. Oh. Well, thank you. So what I was going to say, I'm trying to get this sorted out, and you just, you just keep doing your thing. And so all I was going to say 
is what we actually need. Okay, we understand you're the narrator very much. You're welcome. Now, you're already wondering, how is this going to work? And I want to be really honest with you. We have no idea. But if you're already thinking to yourself, this feels bonkers chaotic. That's kind of the idea. If that's all you take from this whole thing, perfect. So, I do want to say this to you. Anything that you see or hear this morning is actually 100% factual, other than the outfits and probably the swords. But it's actually taken, like, all the... All the... In the year 4 B.C., two years after Jesus... Okay, hey, this is not... Listen, this, this is not a movie preview. So it's a kid's program. Kids so, program. Kids program, yeah. yep, okay. Okay, no, listen, not like Disney, Disney TV. Like, can you just, can you just, like, you're, you're kind of preaching. Thank you. Two years after Jesus was born, King Herod the Great, King Herod the Great was on his deathbed. In his weakened condition, two popular influential Jewish teachers encouraged their students to stand against Herod. And they had an idea of how that could be done. Years before, Herod had set up a large golden eagle on the great gate of the temple in Jerusalem in violation of the second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven image. So these teachers told their students to tear the golden eagle down. At first they were hesitant, but then they heard a rumor that Herod had died. So in the middle of the day, they tore the eagle down. But the problem was, Herod was not dead. He was mostly dead. Herod's soldiers stormed the temple and captured 40 of them, including the teachers, and marched them to Herod's palace in Jericho. As they stood in front of Herod, they were asked about what transpired in the temple, and they proclaimed with one voice to Herod, Yes, what was contrived, we contrived, and what has been performed, we have performed it, and we did it with virtuous courage, for we have given our assistance to those things which were dedicated to the majesty of God. Hey, 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 less Middle Earth. Okay? More Middle East. I am the narrator. Also, it's 2022. I'm not going to do a Middle Eastern accent. And you shouldn't wonder why we did it. It is because we respect the law of Moses, which is more worthy of obedience than anything you command. Well, Herod was too sick and weak to stand. His ruthlessness was on full strength. He sentenced them to an immediate death and had the two teachers and the 40 students burned alive for their actions. As if this was not bad enough. Days before Herod died, he had one of his sons murdered and then betrayed his son Antipas. While Herod willed years earlier that Antipas would succeed him on the throne, in the waning days of his life, he willed that Archelaus, not Antipas, would be the next king. <laughs> then Herod breathed his last and died. Archelaus, the heir to the throne, planned an incredible funeral filled with pomp and circumstance and mourned for seven days for the king. However, Antipas accused his brother of not really mourning, but partying at night with his friends. You know, Archelaus, I get that you're happy you would be king, but you didn't want to wait a week to celebrate out of respect for the dead? And the rift between them is just beginning. Now the seven days of mourning were over, and while some wanted to make Archelaus king, he refused, saying... 
I will wait for the crown to be placed on my head until I can go to Rome so that Caesar Augustus himself can make me king. Archelaus then went up to the temple in Jerusalem and sat on a golden throne on a large platform. He called the people to him and said, What do you want me to do for you? Ask me anything, I will be your king. The people asked for many things, and Archelaus was quick to honor their requests until they insisted he make things right with those who were a part of burning those who tore down the eagle. In response, Archelaus said, I will do no such thing. Those who were burned to death got what they deserved. And this is where things got crazy. <laughs> Not long after, during the Feast of Passover, faithful Jewish people came to the temple and loudly lamented the death of those who tore down Herod's golden eagle. This made Archelaus nervous, so he sent troops to quell a possible rebellion. His plan did not work. A fight broke out, and 3,000 Jewish people were slaughtered. Archelaus decreed the rest had to go home, and he canceled Passover. Not the best start for someone who wants to be king. After this, Archelaus realized he needed to go to Rome immediately to be named king before anything else happened. So he sailed with trusted friends and family for Rome. What Archelaus did not know is that Antipas was also headed to Rome to ask Augustus to make him, not Archelaus, king. I will ask Caesar Augustus myself and tell him my dad always wanted to be king way before Archelaus. Antipas and Archelaus arrived in Rome and pleaded their case before Caesar. Caesar listened to them both until Archelaus threw himself on the ground and pleaded. Caesar was moved by Archelaus and said, I am leaning in favor of granting you the kingdom. I just need some time to think about how much of it I will give you. Just then, a dispatch came from Varus, the governor of Syria. Dear Archelaus, all hell has broken loose in Judea in your absence. Sincerely, your friend Varus. P.S. I hear Rome is lovely this time of year. <laughs> Indeed. The historian Josephus tells us, this, <clears throat> at this time, there were 10,000 other disorders in Judea, which were like talks because a great number put themselves into a warlike posture. While the brothers were in Rome arguing for who should be king, wars broke out all over the place because several Jewish fighters believed they should be king. The first who wanted to be king was Judas of Galilee. He said, I should be king! I have the ambitious desire of royal dignity and I am big and strong! Burned the royal palace, looted other royal buildings, and did the same around the country. 
But then the Roman general Gratus confronted Simon and his men. A long battle ensued. Simon ran, but he did not run fast enough because Gratus chased him and cut off his head. The third who wanted to be king, <clears throat> please note this is almost over, really. I mean, there were just a lot of people who wanted to be king, and it's important for us to get the point this morning. Anyway, the third who wanted to be king was the throne, the throne chief, I'm the narrator. He said, I should be king. I know I come from an unknown family, and that I am not wealthy, and that I am an uneducated shepherd, but that no one knows who I am. But they will know because I have a very particular set of skills. Skills that I have acquired over a very long career. <laughs> like Simon, he put a crown on his head and created a council to help him rule. The chiefs of that council were his four brothers. They all ruled over their own bands of soldiers. They fought battles all over Israel, killing, looting, and burning as they went. Finally, one brother was confronted by Gratus, who killed him. By this time, Archelaus was back in Judea. He took one, of, one brother prisoner, and another brother surrendered to Archelaus in peace. The final brother died in a fierce battle led by the Romans, and no one knows exactly who killed him. As for Apologies himself, no one knows. He ran, got away, and some say he's still running today. The number of wars, battles, and kings was so vast that you'll see the stopped reporting on them because the list was too long. And I'd say that is a good thing because this has gone on long enough and I'm not sure it's even a pageant. In summary, in those days, it was endless bloodshed, battles and wars, burning of cities, crucifixions by the thousands, betrayal, people making themselves kings, kings being assassinated, and families being torn apart by a lust for power. And no one lived happily ever after because a lot of them died or were severely maimed and lived with significant physical limitations as a result. Merry Christmas, everyone! I know this will surprise some of you, but that went a lot better than I thought it would. Now, by the way, if you're here and you're like visiting your grandkids because they sang up here and you're like going out to brunch with your kids, just don't ask them questions about why they come here. All right? Did that feel a little chaotic? That feel a little bit hard to follow? A little confusing? Well, you're getting like just a little tiny taste of what it was like in the time that Herod died in the time that they came back to Israel. Keep in mind, all of this that you just saw happened after Jesus was born. And the only three kings we hear anything about are Judas, Simon, and Ethrages. But there were tons of others. The scholar William Farmer, in discussing this time frame in world history, says this, Josephus tells us in this period the Jews, without the leadership of a native king, were eagerly looking for men who could lead them in their revolutionary activity. And that as soon as they found one who showed promise of leadership, he was made a king immediately. 
Now, what is Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 about? Right. Messiah, son of David, king of the Jews, Herod, Archelaus. And he's describing all of that and narrating that in a time frame where this is the backdrop. This is what's going on in the world. That if you claimed to be king, you would bet that you would go to war. That people were killing for it and people were dying for it. This is what's happening. This is what Matthew is stirring in his readers. All of this intrigue. Now with that in mind, do you realize why Joseph might have been a little bit afraid to go back home? Because Archelaus is the one who begins rounding up all of these characters that are claiming to be king. He is the one who has people under his command that are crucifying 2,000 people in one day. And keep in mind that Joseph and Mary would have gone back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very, very small town that was just south of Jerusalem by about five miles. And all of the, the, uh, everything that had happened with the Magi would have happened maximum three years before all of this began happening. You know how small towns are if you've been from one. Because what happens is when you have a major disruption in that town, everyone talks about it for the rest of their lives. If you were good at varsity basketball in high school, you could be 68 and people would be like, I remember when Roger used to shoot hoops, right? Because everyone remembers. You have an entire entourage from the East that shows up looking for the king of the Jews just a couple of years before. People would have remembered People would have remembered the slaughter of the children commanded by King Herod out of his own fear, and they would have known that Archelaus' own family described him as brutal and tyrannical. So you have a dream, and the angel in the dream says, hey, King Herod has died. It's safe for you to go back to Israel with your king son and your wife. And when he does, he hears Archelaus is ruling, and he's afraid. I don't know about you, but I don't even think you have to be a parent to imagine the kind of fear that Joseph had. I remember more than 10 years ago dropping my first kid off at summer camp. And I had always heard parents be like, I remember the first time I dropped my kid off at camp. It was so hard, and we were worried and had this fear. Was he going to do okay? Was she going to be okay? And I would think to myself, you people are nuts. Like, you are like minus one kid for anywhere from five days to seven days. You should be celebrating. Then I dropped my first kid off at camp. And I remember watching him and his friends walk away with their counselor, and I was like, I'm never going to see him again. And there was this fear, this anxiety, and like all this stuff welling up inside me. I remember calling my parents, and I, I'm the youngest of six, and I was like, hey, did you, did you feel that way when you dropped me off at camp? They were like, no, because you were the youngest of six, and by that time, we regretted all six decisions. Like, all right, can you send me a check for therapy, you know? Could you imagine going back to a place where there was a brutal dictator who just a couple of years before, his dad slaughtered young kids out of his own paranoia about being king, who now was on a war path, crucifying and slaughtering anyone who claimed to be king. This is the world in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, and its surrounding areas. 
a world stained by blood, a world corrupted by a lust for power, a world that was backward and violent and unstable. And as I was reading all of this history and reading about all of this intrigue and reading about all of these murders and reading about people disappearing and running and dying and battles and everything else, this thought started to come over me as I was reading. I was overwhelmed at this thought. This is the world that our king came into. I mean, he could have been born in an area of the world that was a lot safer. He could have been come into this world through another woman in another place, in another context, where this threat was not literally on their shoulders. But this is the world he came into. This world of violence and war and brutality. And that wasn't the only thing that overwhelmed me. The thing that overwhelmed me was how he came into this world. He didn't come in like Archelaus and Antipas who were in front of Caesar Augustus arguing their point about who should be king. He didn't come in like Judas or Simon or Thranges who took up a sword and declared themselves to be king because of their physical stature, which by the way is in fact true, and then went on a warpath and slaughtered Romans and burned buildings. No, he came in as a baby, as an infant. He came in as a part of a people who at that time were oppressed by a global military superpower that we call Rome, who had their boot firmly on the neck of the people of Judea. He came in as a child, dependent for food and sustenance on the, by the breast of his mother, who was needing 24-7 care by adults, diapers changed, who had to be put to sleep, who woke his parents up in the middle of the night, who had to be cradled and rocked, who was burped after he ate. This is how he chose to come into the world, this world of bloodshed. And not only that, he came into the world born to this mom and dad. This father who was told, hey, don't be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. And in saying yes to that, violated his religious upbringing. We could say it this way, he did not obey the Bible. He's born to this mother who's an unwed Jewish mother who's found to be pregnant She's also from a small town. You can imagine the rumors. She too would have been considered one who violated her religious tradition. He's born into this context and born to parents who would have been on the fringes of their faith. And now he has a father who's rightly afraid and powerless to do anything about it. He's born to a mother who, while incredibly courageous to say yes to God, in her context is seen as powerless. He's born into stark, vulnerability, and into poverty, and into a family on the the fringes of their religious tradition, to a family who were refugees, who had to flee political violence, running down to Egypt, which is a wealthy superpower of its day. 
And as I'm sorting out all of this history and reading about all of these characters and reading about all of these battles, the thing I couldn't escape was how often we and I picture the Christmas story. How we're almost trained to think about it. It's more like Norman Rockwell-ish, isn't it? It's just like this. Apparently, they had really good lighting in caves in the first century. Apparently, everyone was really white in the Middle East. Mary is like perfectly clean. She doesn't even look like she's gone through anything. And I look at this and think like, you know, this is kind of nice. It can kind of make us feel good about the story. By the way, who's, who's the woman to the right of Joseph? I'm asking, I have no idea. And I actually didn't even see that earlier, but apparently she's there. Some of you might know. But this is how we often look at it, isn't it? I mean, think about the nativity scenes in your home. But as I read this story about this couple who was fearful, who was fleeing political violence, who gave birth to a ruler that was a threat to the rulers that were there in the midst of war, in the midst of violence, in the midst of chaos, what I began to realize is when Jesus and Joseph and Mary came back from, went to Egypt as political refugees and were lost and fearful, Christmas started to look a lot more like this. It's a story about a king. I asked you at the very beginning, what do you think of, or what image comes to mind when you hear the word king? Did it look anything like that? You see, maybe we like the picture that I showed before this one. Because sometimes dealing with the reality of what this picture is telling us can be difficult. Unless you're someone here this morning who really is dealing with, struggling with, in the midst of fear. Unless you're someone here this morning who feels deeply vulnerable. Someone who feels like in some ways you're running for your life someone who's confused, someone who feels like you're in the midst of chaos and nothing is going to make it better. You see, in all of the reading, in all of the context, in all of the history, what I was overwhelmed with was not just that God came into the midst of the chaos, but in a way that I cannot explain to you this morning, even if I had all the time in the world. That even in the midst of our fear, in our anger, in our hate, in our division, in our violence, that somehow when God comes to the midst of that as a vulnerable child, it insists to all of us that there is hope, that there is Emmanuel, that God is with us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, that the gospel writers don't sanitize things when they tell your story. 
Forgive us for the ways that we've attempted to do that over the years to make your story more palatable and less challenging. I ask that for those of us here this morning who are in a place that feels chaotic, a place that feels fearful, a place of disorientation, that you would cause us to see the way you enter our worlds, both then and now. Not with power, not with a show of strength, but in vulnerability and in weakness, in love and compassion. Would that allow us to see that even though our circumstances may not change in a way that we cannot explain, we are invited to trust that we can hope. We pray these things together. In the strong name of our King Jesus and all of my friends said together, amen. Thanks for engaging our teaching this week. Before you go, we want to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. As you know, Christmas is just around the corner and one of our favorite gatherings for the year is a final celebration of Advent and Christ coming to dwell among us, which is Christmas Eve. We'd love for you to join us in person on Saturday, December 24th for either of our gatherings at 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. Childcare is available for all kids zero to five years old. We look forward to celebrating with you all. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download the DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we might continue to be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.